This podcast is brought to you by eGauge Systems, advanced, affordable, and reliable energy monitoring. The eGauge is a data logger, web server, and energy meter in one device. With revenue-grade accuracy, eGauge can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and sub-metering. Learn more at eGauge.net. For the week of July 9th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Greentech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Greentech Media in Washington, D.C. Also with me in Washington is Catherine Hamilton. She's a partner with 38 North Solutions, a public policy firm here that works on a lot of different clean energy issues. Catherine, how's your July shaping up? Just great, thanks. Uh, Nice and warm here in D.C. All right, I have to say, I read this piece from you a few minutes before we got on this podcast, and you said that energy storage was the bacon of the electric grid. That I loved that piece. What were you just talking makes about everything, there? Just makes everything better. Wait, so you didn't know that bacon makes everything better, and I understand <laughs> that you Googled what makes everything better and bacon came up. It did. I didn't know what was going to come up, and thankfully it was bacon. Even though I'm a vegetarian, I thought it would be a, a, you know, a great symbol. <laughs> it's a great piece. I tweeted it out. If you're uh, following my Twitter feed, you can see it there. It's a, it's a really interesting piece. In San Francisco, it is Jigger Shah. He's the founder of Sun Edison and a partner with Clean Fleet Investors. Jigger, hope you're back from Chicago refreshed, now on the road, I think, at the Inner Solar Conference. How are things? Things are good. The Inner Solar um, is really featuring batteries um, this time around, so I think they also think it makes everything better. All right, well, Jigger's on the road this week. He usually brings his mic with him, but he forgot it this time, so he's using the onboard mic. The quality will be a little bit less, so we apologize for that. Jigger, isn't the energy gang so important to you that you bring your mic every time? (laughs) I usually do. I just forgot it, unfortunately, this time around. (laughs) And uh, we were talking about your friend and actually a friend of uh, Catherine's husband, Mike Richter, who is a former New York Rangers goalie. And I just saw that he closed a $26 million fund to finance uh, distributed solar and efficiency projects. So a nice piece of news there. Yeah, it's, it's it's pretty amazing how broad and wide you know our industry is getting now. You know, when uh, when former New York Ranger goalies are raising money, then you know we've gone mainstream. All right. Well, we've got another solar industry veteran on our show today. He is uh, not at Inner Solar this week. He's down in the sh- Sunshine State. It is Neville Williams, the founder of the off-grid solar company Selco and the U.S. solar company Standard Solar. Neville, welcome to the show. How's everything down in Florida? Oh, it's hot, but not as hot as in up north in many cases. That's why we like it here. Excellent. All right. Well, we've got a good first segment planned. Neville is out with a new book called Sun Power, and it tells his personal story throughout the last 35 years in the solar industry. And we're going to chat with him about lessons learned in off-grid solar, the very early days of solar policy, and about the emergence of the new generation of solar pioneers, folks like Jigger. Then in our second segment, we are going to have a look at some key state policies. It's been a while since we've looked at what states have been up to, and there's a lot of news to cover. In our third segment, we'll talk about Sun Edison's recent positive turnaround and how an activist investor helped influence the company. And at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you may not know. Or in Jigger's case, he'll talk about sports again. 
First, let's talk about the history of solar. Neville Williams has been involved in the industry since 1979, when Jimmy Carter first made the technology a national priority. At that time, Williams went on to the Department of Energy to work with early advocates there, communicating a federal investment strategy around solar hot water and PV. At that time, solar hot water was fairly competitive, but crystalline silicon PV cells cost more than $55 per watt. The team at DOE had its work cut out for it, both in helping drop the cost of solar and convincing officials to invest in the technology. So Neville, I want to start out with those early days that you talk about in the book. And a lot of the folks that are working on those issues, when people learned what they were doing, they said, what are those guys smoking? Or as you explain in the book, what were they drinking? Uh, You know, referencing the big dreams of the early advocates. How did that first national strategy come together? And what kind of big thinking was there, given that solar was very uncompetitive at that point? Well, um, we were dreaming. We had saw solar revolution coming. I don't know how, why, because the technology wasn't really ready. It was too expensive, but it was pretty sexy. The idea of converting sunlight to electricity uh, would 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 evolve. We believed, and of course, it has. Solar hot water never really interested me, but it's a very efficient, effective way to cut back on you know fossil fuels, and it works. And it became big. It got a lot of scammers got in the business, and the whole business collapsed eventually. I think Carter was the visionary himself, and he got the section of the Department of Energy uh, tasked with seeing what we could do about it. And uh, so there was a lot of interagency liaison, a lot of lobbying the Hill as much as a department's able to do, or at least informing the Hill, and doing a lot of basic research. That's where I first met Paul Maycock, who'd later joined the board of my nonprofit Self and later Selco. And he was one of the guys fighting to, he, well, he had a half billion dollar budget, I think, or maybe more, to, to do. TV research, and as you said, the price was pretty high in those days. And so improving manufacturing processes with some DOE grants here and there helped some of the companies, you know, uh, bring it down to earth from space. You know, it all started in space. Yeah, um, and a guy like Paul Maycock, I mean, he thought that solar would be totally competitive by the mid-'80s or the early-'90s. And, I know. Well, and, we, we, you know, we all drank the same Kool-Aid. Um, uh, I have a tape of Paul from 1990. Way back then, saying it's going to be $2 a watt by by 1990. I was threatened if he didn't support my causes, I was threatened to release the tape. You know, it was an interview with him for, for radio. It's pretty funny. But, you know, it, but, hey, it's 50 cents now, so we got there. You live long enough, you know, things happen. <laughs> you kind of fell into this, interestingly. I, I did. And, and, and how did you fall into it? Well, I met a guy at a bar in Colorado. You know, I started in a bar in Colorado. And, he was. He had a vacation home there. I lived there full time. He was working for Carter. He'd worked for Carter as a governor of Georgia. Um, during Carter, um, you know, it was time to leave the East Coast and live in the mountains. Had a good time, and he said, "Come on back and help out with this new crusade," which was nothing about the environment. It had a lot to do with um, how are we going to get off foreign oil. That's really what it was about in those days. And the idea that you could make a carbon-free form of energy, one way or another, sounded like a good a good battle. So off I went and wrote speeches and got sort of hooked on the technology. You know, one of the interesting stories in this book is the conflict between priorities at the DOE around synthetic fuels, research and development around synfuels, and research and development for solar. And obviously there are always competitions for limited funding, and we're still seeing some of these conflicts around advanced fossil fuels and advanced renewables, but it was different back then uh, because solar was so uncompetitive. How did, how did solar get overtaken by some of those early unconventional fossil fuel technologies? 
Well, it never got overtaken. It just never got the same priority. I mean, lots of money went into sin fuel. It's actually Reagan who stopped that. He called it corporate welfare, and he shut it down. And all the big oil companies simply pulled out of it without the government buying, the, spending the money. They didn't want any part of it because they knew it was a stupid idea. So all the solar stuff was fringe. But Carter believed in it, and he thought he could get more out of it, out of it than he did. But it was a good start, and uh, you know we never. But I, I, I'm not a big fan of the Department of Energy. I'm not sure if it's done all that well. It's, I think lately it's done a great job in renewables, especially under Obama. You know we can see serious the stimulus money that was directed towards solar has actually done a lot of great stuff, as your organizations have pointed out and reports have shown. But in those days, you know, it was just sort of a struggling idea. But it, you know, got my appetite whetted to where it could go, and it was ultimately the private sector. Some people say that it was, believe it or not, the oil companies that kept solar moving for a whole decade during the Reagan years when he tried to shut it all down. Neville, I loved the story of, um, I worked at the National Renewable Energy Lab in the 90s uh, for about seven years, and I love the story of how what was then the Solar Energy Research Institute, SERI, which then became NREL, got started. I love that story that you tell. No, I think NREL did a great job. They were never allowed to publicize what they did. But they, and I guess, the way the government works, all these things are contracted out. It was Mid- Midwest Research Associates or something that ran NREL. They didn't know anything about solar. It was just they were good at getting government contracts. So these things get so watered down within the government agency system, it's, it's pretty pathetic. But NREL's done great, great work, and we got later on in the off-grid stuff I did. We got a lot of NREL support. So Neville, you know, I mean, your your first book, Chasing the Sun, was a huge, had a huge impact on me when it came out in sort of 2005. And um, you know, you you really had this grand vision for solar, and it took you to Sri Lanka, it took you to and meet Harish Hyundai, and the Indian government is now in their proclamations of giving everyone, um, you know, off-grid solar by 2019. I'm just, you know, wondering whether you'd look back on that time and sort of you know, maybe wax poetically about your role in it. Well, yes, and it was exciting because, you know, the point is I learned about solar when it was $50 a watt and then down to $5 a watt, and I said, you know, I I did some work for SolarX, which was near my house in Washington, and uh, learned a little about it and got to, you know, know meet the pioneers and all of that. And I said, boy, could we put this to work in America, you know, in the early, late, late 80s, I thought about this. And uh, no, too expensive. So the developing world seemed to be, I had spent a lot of time in the developing world. It was actually in Africa where I got this idea. And, you know, it's, you know, like you got the idea for PPAs and your whole concept of Sun Edison. Suddenly an idea comes to you and you say, you know, I'm going to pursue that. And I, it, it takes a certain kind of person, an entrepreneur is a risk taker, or maybe you could say a fool, but uh, you try your best. And, and so I said, you know, these people could use this power because they don't care the kilowatt hour cost of solar. They care about having a light in their house. And if a 20, 30 or 40 watt solar panel would deliver that, why aren't we using that? Because these people are never going to get the electric grid. They were going to become sort of post fossil fuel electricity um, makers and users. Uh, it's just like with cell phones, skipping over the wire, wired era, you know, going wireless with, with power. And it, not that people hadn't tried it here and there around the world, but nobody had done it in a big way. So I was able to you know, raise quite a lot of money and launch projects in a bunch of countries, 12 countries, 11 countries, actually. India was the most successful because it's the big, most challenging. But we could see there uh, we could make it into a sustainable enterprise, ultimately. So the nonprofit work led to a for-profit company, so, which is all described in the book. And those are those great adventures. And now we have a prime minister there, Modi, who's saying, 
this new guy is saying, hey, for 400 million, acknowledging 400 million families without power, yeah. 400 million people or whatever, and, and we're going to bring solar. And, we're, and so I said to my colleague Harish Handy, who does run the company now and has been at it since 95, it's in, this is its 20th anniversary year. And uh, I said, what do you think of the new guy? Is he going to do it? He said, we'll see. He's always skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> so you got the idea for off-grid solar, riding around on a motorcycle in Africa, and you got into the DOE having a drink at a bar. You're my kind of guy. You're, you're getting ideas at the best places to get ideas. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so your work has had an impact in other firms that have pioneered this space. You look not just at individual politicians, but at organizations like the UN, the World Bank, other financial institutions, they're now viewing off-grid solar in a much different way. And I'm wondering how difficult it was in those early days versus what you see today. It's still obviously an extremely tough business, tough to raise money, tough to deploy projects, but it has changed. And how much of you, how much do you think it's changed? <laughs> Well, I don't. Some, I don't know if these international agencies ever change. To be honest, with you. I'm a little <laughs> skeptical. But because in the end, you know, it's about private capital and private business, and just going out and doing it uh, with money. And uh, these, you know, we had a lot of frustration. People said, "Why did you deal with the World Bank?" I said, "Because first of all, I lived in Washington. It was easy to get downtown to the World Bank, but that's where the money is. So, you know, why did you rob a bank? That's where the money was." Um, and they provided money and guidance, but they had so many technocrats and bureaucrats and academics. And I used to joke that every for every 10 solar home systems we would install in Sri Lanka or Vietnam or India, someone else would come and write their Ph.D. about it, you know. So these agencies drove, drove us all crazy. But, you know, and now we're kind of uh, not beholden. I, th I think the solar industry worldwide really isn't beholden to them anymore, and these guys are trying to catch up. And the book explains, you know, I call it the Cirque du Soleil. You know, everybody jumping into the game, and they were jumping into the game now. Uh, I think a lot of small entrepreneurs and people in these countries themselves, they don't need Western aid. They don't need Western technology. They just need their own ability to be entrepreneurs in the, in the cultural and economic context of their own countries. And we're seeing that grow. You know, and if some of the agencies want to throw some money their way, especially for the extremely poor people who, who still need electricity and can't maybe afford it, because much of what we did was about financing the stuff. It's like... The technology works. We had to first convince the bank and all these people that the, the stuff worked and it was practical. That was a big job. UN too, and you know, did projects in Zimbabwe with the United Nations, and it sort of was a catalyst. It was a good catalyst. So we took their money, we did the best with it, and then moved on. So, what's your biggest takeaway from the last four decades of the solar industry? I mean, you know, I've only been covering this industry since around 2006, so not even a decade of seeing it evolve. And so my thinking is, is a big product of a lot of the new generation of pioneers like Jigger. And at, at the time I got into this industry, you know, solar didn't really feel like an inevitability, um, but it really does today. And 35 yeah. years ago, it was not even close to being an inevitability. Well, I, I think you've, you've, gotten in, you've gotten into it at the right time. You don't have, you're not all bruised and damaged from all those struggling years and lost hopes and crusades. Um, you can take it to the next step, as people like Jigger and many others are doing. You know, I'm, I'm always impressed with the many young entrepreneurs I meet. I just was off the, on the phone this morning with a guy, Tom Lane, here, who wrote that story I sent you guys uh, about the darkness, heart of darkness in the sunshine state, about the Koch brothers doing everything they can to destroy solar nationwide wherever they can. And this guy's been in solar since 1977. He's angry and tired and 
old, and yet then I meet young guys in their mid-20s starting new solar companies in Florida and doing, one guy just did 100 schools in Florida with a DOE grant, 100 schools, 10 kilowatts per school, and things like that. So lots going on. I think what I take away is um, is really a good feeling that it wasn't all for nothing, That and it was not, fr- nobody saw the China miracle or the China, what I call it, the China surprise coming. And I spent 10 years in and out of China, and I didn't see it coming. So I think the fact that the prices are at 50 cents a watt now means there's no stopping this. So I'm glad I got to be involved long enough to see the success, but it's going to be a new generation of people that take it to the next level, which is going to be the world's biggest disruptive technology. And it's basically going to put the fossil fuel you know, power industry out of business in 10, 5, 10, I don't know, Jigger, what's your prediction? How many years? <laughs> well, you know, I it, I think one of the takeaways from your 40 years is that predictions are very hard to make. But I do think that, you know, The Guardian had a great article this week and, you know, they're, they're saying that, you know, solar is already disrupting the economics of existing uh, coal. And um, right. so I do think in the next five years, you're going to see really no new uh, thermal plants get built um, after five years from now just because you couldn't make the economics work. Uh, the book is called Sun Power, and it was written by Neville Williams, our guest. Uh, Neville, I enjoyed the book a lot, and thanks for the conversation. Really appreciate you being on. Well, thank you, Stephen and Catherine and, and Jigger. A pleasure. Thanks for inspiring everybody, including my very own son, who's going into this uh, renewable energy finance himself. And he'll make a lot of money. And by the way, we didn't talk about energy storage, which, as you know, is the next big thing. That's that's your next book, Neville. (laughs) Okay, well, I don't think so, but I'm going to watch it. Thanks, Neville. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, I want to take a break here to recognize our sponsor, E-Gage Systems, which is a manufacturer of next-generation energy meters. By combining a revenue-grade energy meter, a data logger, and web server into one fully integrated device – eGauge provides real-time access to second-by-second data presented on a user-friendly interface. eGauge is an ideal solution to monitor and view as many as 12 circuits, all with no ongoing fees. Applications for the eGauge meter include solar generation and building demand, sub-metering, performance contracts, lead projects, and net-zero buildings. Uh, And those can apply to a wide range of industry professionals. If you're a solar installer, a portfolio manager, investor, building management professional, HVAC contractor, data aggregator, or an energy software provider, the eGauge meter is your device. Measure every moment with eGauge. To learn more, go to www.egauge.net. Let's go to the state level now. Per usual, most of the interesting and meaningful action in the U.S. is happening in the states. In the last month, we've seen all kinds of mixed developments in at least a dozen key markets. Washington State has a new battery storage program. Massachusetts is changing its solar incentive program and attempting to reform utility regulation. And Arizona is in the throes of a debate around property taxes for solar systems. It can be hard to keep up with it all. Rather than try to focus on every story, we're just going to pick a state apiece and chat about it briefly. Uh, So let's go to the southeast, where Jigger and Catherine have both picked states that they want to talk about in that region. Catherine, let's go to you first. Uh, You want to talk about Georgia. What's got your attention there? So they're going to add 900 megawatts of solar. Um, This is a very interesting state, and I need to 
give a shout out to Scott Thomason, who spent some time with me. Kind of, he's a Georgia native and has worked a lot on solar in Georgia, and he kind of helped walk me through kind of what the backstory is on solar because the story just broke yesterday that they're they're going to be 900 megawatts of solar. Um, you know, 57 megawatts were offered up to installers, and 1,200 installers submitted applications. Um, a lot of this is is uh, the Army, so um, 90 megawatts will will bring the Army nine percent closest to their to their federal goals, which are pretty substantial on solar. Um, the person who's really been driving solar in Georgia is Commissioner Bubba McDonald who was elected in 2008. In 2009, he went into office as a state public utility commissioner in Georgia. And he's a, he's a Republican, uh, like a funeral home director, and decided that solar was going to be his thing. So in 2011, he he um, he put what, they, what you would call forced solar, which, uh, you know, Georgia Power is really saying it's voluntary um, so that they won't have to have an RPS. But he's really pushed solar forward. And, uh, you know, they started with 50 megawatts. Then in 2000. 2012, over 200 megawatts, and and they've slowly been growing the solar um, market there. And then we had the Tea Party and the Green Movement coming together as well. So there's this kind of really interesting nexus of people on all sides of the aisle who are kind of coming together to make solar work um, in Georgia. And now it's like the seventh biggest solar market, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, they are really, you know, Georgia's tied for 10th of solar potential in the country. So, you know, you have your typical states, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, California, those states, Texas. Um, but Georgia is right up there um, with South Carolina, Mississippi on, you know, the states that are really good potential for solar. And if you look at what the potential is for them in both solar and then, you know, in meeting their greenhouse gas um, you know, 111D requirements, they could infuse nine, over $900 million into their economy and create 14,000 clean energy jobs. I mean, they have a great potential there. Part of the issue is the politics and some of the existing laws, uh, one of which is called the Territorial Electric Service Act, which only allows utilities to sell electricity. Um, so there's not an ability for others to be able to install rooftop solar. So that's kind of one of those big barriers that's going to need to be removed. Um, but it's a, it's a very interesting state. And one of the things I asked Scott um, was, you know, what do you think about it turning blue? Uh, Because right now there are two Democrats, uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, grandson, and Sam Nunn's daughter, who are running and polling really well. Now, of course, this means the Koch brothers have dumped a bunch of money into the oppositional races. But what's interesting is you may potentially have some well-known Democrats and then some Tea Party um, folks that are kind of aligned on clean energy and on solar in particular. And what that ends up doing is isolating corporate Republicans in the middle. So I don't know. The, the state is fascinating. I want to watch it. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what else happens in Georgia. Jigger, is Georgia a bellwether for other states? Yeah. I mean, just to add to Catherine's point, I mean, I think the last time Georgia Power filed an integrated resource plan, they had requested zero solar. They said that they basically didn't need any new resource. The Public Service Commission, led by you know Bubba McDonald, basically said, "B.S. You can't be a utility in the 21st century and say renewables aren't a material part of your long-term resource planning." And you know, I think the Georgia Power has sort of gotten the message and has said, "Okay, well, if you can't beat them, join them, right?" And so you know, they've sort of figured out how to integrate solar and you know their value of solar study in Georgia actually that was performed by a Southern Company came out at um, a price that was higher than retail electricity prices. And so they really provided a fair value, I think, for solar. 
Um, so it's it, things are things are changing. Yeah, and I see states like Georgia, you know, Georgia Power, which is, of course, um, the parent company, a southern company. You know, I see them doing this to kind of hedge against what's happening in New York, where potentially, you know, the disaggregation of the distributed generation market is going to wreak havoc on the on what the utilities look like. And these guys say are saying, wait, we want to be in control. We're going to do this in a way that allows us to maintain control and yet still meet all the goals that you know, the national goals that are going to be, be set for us. Jigger, your story is pretty close by over in Tennessee, right next door. Yes, I picked a, you know, fairly obscure state in Tennessee to, to you know, provide the example. Because so when EPA came out with its rules, they, they sort of mandated a 39, I think, percent reduction in carbon from Tennessee. Um, some of that's already baked in because they've got the first nuclear power plant to be built in the 21st century. will be coming online there um, I think next year, um, and so that's that's sort of sort of already in the books. But what's even more amazing is that the Public Service Commission in Tennessee, which is basically run by Tennessee Valley Authority, um, is looking to the utilities to meet customer demand, and they're more inclined than ever, and officially expect TVA to say how much renewables can be added to the grid. Um, and this really changes the new normals. So we used to talk about stuff like an RPS, where you'd mandated the utility hit this. Now the Public Service Commission is saying that we expect you to actually look at renewables in your integrated resource plan and model it to figure out what the lowest cost way to serve customers are in the future. And they're finding that a significant amount of renewables actually is a cheaper way of meeting their mandate to providing reliable power than relying on thermal power planning. So this is is really happening. We're seeing more states more regulators actually saying that it's cost competitive, if not cheaper, to develop renewables. This is the crossover that we've been talking about for years, and consistently we're seeing it in many states. It's also the crossover that we were talking about coming from the EPA ruling. And so, I mean, this is the importance of the EPA ruling is it buttresses the Public Service Commission's natural inclination to protect consumers from higher rates from, from volatile fossil fuels. Yeah, and I was just going to say some of the drivers have changed. So certainly one of the drivers being climate, resilience, you know, commissions um, and utilities are taking decisions differently based on different drivers than they had 10 years ago. Absolutely. So I'm going to go up north on the East Coast still, and I've got a story that's a little juicy. It's been going on for a while, but it actually just came to my attention recently. It's in Connecticut, and that state recently passed a piece of legislation that was designed to close this technical loophole that to prevent systems from receiving that, that got loans uh, or that were paid for in cash from double dipping on incentives. And under law, a system that wasn't leased could get rebates and a performance based incentives. So lawmakers wanted to fix that. But in this bill, there was a clerical error, or at least what people assume was a clerical error. And the language referenced net metering rather than the performance based incentive program. So direct-owned systems in Connecticut, where actually you're seeing new loan products take off uh, with support of Connecticut's Green Bank, they were unable to qualify for net metering if they took a state rebate. So for the last few weeks, utilities have been halting applications for systems uh, that qualified for rebates. So a conspiracy formed by third-party-owned companies? No, I'm just kidding. It's... uh, It's seems to be a simple error made by a clerk. Uh, but the industry is scrambling to find a fix. And um, 
And initially there was a call to quickly revise the legislation, but it seems like uh, the next revision wouldn't be until the next legislative session, which might not be until March of 2015, according to some people who are close to the matter. So the Green Bank is there revising its incentive system so that rebates are turned into performance-based incentives and then will be paid out over the first month of a system's operation. But it's kind of tricky because installers selling systems through loans or cash now need a loan um, to equal the upfront rebate to cover expenses. And so they need to wait for a month for any incentive. So it's, you know, this complicated mess and installers are pretty upset. The Green Bank has jumped in to restructure incentives to create a direct loan product for installers. But the new rebate applications won't be considered until the end of this week, I believe. It's It kind of reminds me of the early days of the rebate programs when installers would wait outside of commissions to secure limited rebates that would run out in hours. But this is pretty unique. I've never really seen a problem like this. Well, this is, I mean, look, for somebody who's followed Connecticut for a very long time, Connecticut has made their bed and that's why they're sleeping in it now. I mean, Connecticut is by far the worst state in the country at how much heavy handedness they use to every to micromanage every little frickin thing um, for these installers. They pay 18 cents a kilowatt hour. It's the highest average kilowatt hour rate paid in the United States of America. Solar is basically a grid parity in Connecticut, but they can't take off the shackles because the Green Bank wants to micromanage everything. Then, like, the state legislature wants to figure out how to switch people to loans away from leases because they have this bias against leases. Then they decided that they actually want, you know, these other things. And it's just, it's maddening to work in Connecticut because they just refuse to believe in capitalism. So I hadn't seen those cost figures before. That's quite interesting. Um, But the Green Bank here seems to be stepping in when needed. I mean, this was a legislative problem, not a Green Bank problem. And they're the ones that are creating this fix that's needed. No, but the Green Bank has the other side of the problem, right, which is they have these auctions for these ZEVs, right, the zero emission credits, mm-hmm. the ZREX or whatever. And so then they basically hold everybody up on that. And it's just it's maddening what they do. Like, you know, we told them a long time ago, why not just adopt the California program, which is basically a fixed payment and it goes down by volume. They're like, no, no. How could we micromanage the program if we did that? I, I hate all of the crap coming out of Connecticut, and Rhode Island is no better. That's why both states have these fits and starts. And yes, this was a clerical error, but in general, they they sabotage themselves on a regular basis. Let's go on to our third story now, and it is a topic about a company that Jigger is very familiar with, Sun Edison. The New York Times Deal Book published an article this week on how Sun Edison the company Jigger founded, turned it, turned itself around after a rough patch in 2012 and 2013. Uh, Jigger had left the company at that point, and Ahmad Shatila was CEO. At that time, as Green Tech Media has closely reported, Sun Edison was struggling. In 2009, it was acquired by the semiconductor company MEMC, and some were left scratching their heads about why a wafer manufacturer would buy up a downstream solar developer. Those concerns turned out to be right, and a slump in the semiconductor industry weighed the company. In the first quarter of last year, uh, Sun Edison lost nearly $103 million. Then in March of last year, MEMC changed its name to Sun Edison in order to focus more heavily on solar development. That summer, it spun off its semiconductor business entirely. The move has helped the company greatly, and Sun Edison's stock is at the highest it's been in a year. Adding to that recent boost was the formation of a yield co. that allowed it to use the public markets to build its project development pipeline. 
Jigger, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this shift at Sun Edison over the last couple of years. How important were these elements in the shift in strategy for the company, the elements that I outlined? Well, I mean, I think that that the broad pieces that came out of the article was that that the investors in Sun Edison were clearly confused between the semiconductor division and the solar division. And I think once MEMC chose solar as their horse in terms of growing the stock price um, and talked to the investors clearly about how the semiconductor division was really just the cash cow that would, you know, sort of be spun off. Um, I think, you know, that's really where the clarity came in from the investors. And then I think further clarity, because um, the balance sheet of people like Sun Edison or, Sun, or Solar City and others looks very weird because they have this Enron, um, post-Enron, all the accounting firms had very strict standards on how to account for assets that you own under leases. And so the balance sheet and income statement of Sun Edison is just completely difficult to follow for investors. And so the, what the Yield Co. really does is make it clean. So Sun Edison is the development company, and the Yield Co. is sort of the asset company. And so people can very clearly understand what kind of development fees they make and what kind of asset fees they make on the other side. Um, and so I think that level of clarity, according to the article, was driven by this hedge fund manager. Um, and I think that that really was the problem with um, Sun Edison. I'm not yeah. sure the company fundamentally was bad. Yeah. Um, but I do think the investors were clearly confused. Yeah, so the New York Times article attributes this shareholder activism for some of the turnaround, and the person largely responsible for the turnaround was Steve uh, Tessereri. Is that how you say it? Do you know? Is it Tessereri? I don't know him, yeah. Yeah, so from Altai Capital. He was brought onto the board in 2012, and some of these ideas were his. Uh, Any thoughts on the role of shareholder activism generally? You don't know Steve, but... Uh, how important is that to bring in these outside folks to boards to shake things up? Well, look, I mean, I do think that when you look at corporations and, you know, the mess that they've put us in, in, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, having activist board members that could have actually um, prevented some of these excesses at the corporate level and, you know, some of these blind spots that corporate CEOs get around their core business is clearly valuable. I'm not, you know, I, I think that, you know, in my opinion, you know, Sun Edison was really more plagued with um, their investors clearly just not understanding where the growth in their business was coming from versus a pure play like Solar City. Um, and but but I, you know, I still think the marriage between a semiconductor company and a solar company is still good. I mean, it, I mean, it, it's the two things that Chinese don't do well, right? The Chinese don't make silicon well, and the Chinese don't sell systems well mm-hmm. and finance well, right? So. I think the marriage is still pretty well, uh, pretty pretty good. I just think it was misunderstood. Yeah. All right, let's finish the show here and tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, got any good stories this week? Yeah, so one thing I wanted to do was to let folks know that 38 North has more than just me in it. Um, I have three other partners, Patrick Von Bargen, Isaac Brown, and Jeff Kramer, all of whom are, you know, the other three parts of my brain. And they inform me uh, when when we talk about what kind of stories we're going to do. They provide new suggestions. They've been really, really instrumental in allowing me to do this. And I just wanted to give them a shout out because Patrick um, suggested that I use this particular story for what you may not know, which is about North Dakota, if we're talking about states. So on July 1st, North Dakota approved a flaring policy for natural gas methane flaring, which, okay, just to give you an idea, in April, North Dakota gas operators burned off 30% of their gas. 
Um, this is insane. And methane, as you know, is even a worse um, pollutant than carbon dioxide. So um, North Dakota's regulation is going to order companies to reduce by 90 or 95 percent of their flaring by 2020, which I think is astounding, especially in a state like North Dakota that hasn't seemed to have any kind of you know, restrictions on all of the gas and oil development they've had. But now they're starting to pay attention. They're losing a lot of money. So, you know, there's this methane leakage issue and they're burning off a lot of methane. But if you can make a pretty clear financial case for using these caps to cap methane and prevent so much flaring. And hopefully it'll drive some innovation in using, reusing that methane in much more productive ways. Yeah, absolutely. A number of organizations have really pushed this hard. I think Ceres has done some very good reports on this. Yeah. Jigger, tell us something we don't know. Is it sports related this week? <laughs> well, we could if we wanted to be. I mean, Germany did just completely destroy Brazil, like seven to one. Um, I think it has caused mass panic and rioting in Brazil. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I was going to talk a little bit more about uh, transportation. And one of the interesting things that I've seen is that um, uh, I was talking to Graham Richards at uh, AE, and you know, Uber has you know sort of had this massive amount of. Um, uh, public relations type stuff that they had to do in different places to be able to get the right to um, to uh, to operate in you know Washington D.C. or other places. And what's amazing is that there still seems to be a, largely a lack of a coordinated effort on behalf of these transport providers, whether it's Sidecar, or Lyft, or Uber or others, in creating a trade association that really focuses on going state to state and city to city to actually figure out how to implement best practices in all these areas. And um, it just sort of makes me realize how um, how blessed we've been in the solar industry, where as much as we fight, um, we actually work together remarkably well across the country, as we talked about in our state um, episode. And it, it sounds like the transportation guys don't really it's not that they don't like each other. It's just they don't have any formal way to work together. Yeah. Catherine, you've been executive director and policy director of every major advanced energy organization out there, seemingly. Why don't you get this going? Well, actually, there is an, a, an organization called the Intelligent Transportation Society of America, where my son is right now working. And <laughs> they spend, a, by the way, they spend a lot of time thinking about this and thinking about how, you know, intelligent transportation systems need to be working together. So I think there there might be a place for that. I just don't know that it's actually rallied around this particular piece of the sector. All right. Well, this winter, a security firm reported that it found security flaws in web-connected refrigerators. So mine is on security. And there's a new story out about uh, Internet of Things security. A British internet company, uh, internet security hacking firm said it had hacked into web-connected LED lights. This company, Context Security, said it stole the username and password from an LIFX-connected LED light bulb in a UK household and was able to control the lights remotely. It was in a controlled setting, though, so the hackers bought the bulbs, looked at how they communicated on a Wi-Fi network, and found one of those um, inner bulb communications supplied the actual personal information. So they posed as a light bulb, and got away with the usernames and passwords. So the LIFX says the security flaw was fixed and that no personal information was compromised that they know of, and the security firm was doing it to prove a point. 
Um, but it, it raises the question about data security in the connected world. And we're looking at a quarter trillion web-connected devices worldwide by the end of the decade. Many of those will have good security. Many of them will not. And actually, this LED hack was a little bit limited because you have to be pretty close to the bulb. But one could imagine connected LED streetlights being a problem. Very easy to get close to those. Or any other smart city technologies that are out there on the street. So the companies I talk with are developing devices like this. They take security very seriously. Um, And I'm not a web or data security expert at all, but my guess is that the real experts who are testing this stuff are going to find a lot more flaws in energy-related projects in in the future. Yeah, well, you know, there was that hacker that died the other, uh, like last year or the year before, who used to do these spectacular hacks from on stage in Las Vegas during like the hacker convention. And, you know, one year they got into all these Siemens boxes, which controlled all these important um, functions for the electric utility grid, which Siemens is now, you know, making hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, replacing all their boxes with more secure ones. But mm-hmm. um, it is, it is, it, it, there's sort of two sides to this. It's like, we're so vulnerable. Why aren't we seeing blackouts every day? Maybe people are a lot nicer than they purport to be in the world. <laughs> I often think that. And the other question is whether like security concerns will impact actual adoption of technology. And my guess is really no, because so far we haven't seen any huge flaws that have scarred the industry. And consumers on the web are dealing with security scares all the time, but uh, it, it's still a top of mind for energy devices that get more connected. Consumers are still dealing with these security scares, but they use the products. And my sense is that it's not going to prevent them from purchasing and using these home-connected devices. That is the end of this week's show. To listen to back episodes or to find links to stories we discussed, head on over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. For questions or comments, send them our way. My email address is Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. And I always pass emails around to the rest of the gang. You can also ping us on Twitter. We are all very searchable there, including the Energy Gang handle. Thanks so much to our sponsor, eGage Systems, for supporting this show. And thanks to all of you for your support each week. Catherine Hamilton, talk to you real soon. Yep, have a great week. Jigger Shaw, have fun in San Francisco. Thanks. I'm uh, looking forward to the, you know, the conclusion of the World Cup on uh, Sunday. I think it's going to be fun. Oh, it'll be a blast. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.